The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your, hear the prayer your servant is praying before you today, before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So as you look around the world at the moment, I wonder what, what do you see? I wonder if you have a word that sums up some of what is going on around us. Perhaps you see a lot of rubble around you, a bit of brokenness internationally, nationally, perhaps locally as well, and maybe personally there feels a a place of brokenness in our lives as well. It certainly feels as if over the last few years, day I say weeks, day I say days, day I say hours, that there is a sort of a shaking going on all around us. And one that gives us that feeling of instability and perhaps uncertainty as to what might happen next. The foundations have been shaken. Perhaps maybe your belief has been suspended a bit, belief in anything, because of the uncertainty that we have been moving through as the news bombards us with uh, page after page, uh, sentence after sentence of the chaos and the struggles that are going on in people's lives at the moment. Relationships damaged, values confused, marriages broken, workplaces that have a lot of tension in them at the moment, unstable institutions, things that we took for granted as being stable suddenly become much more fluid and it's hard for us to grab hold of it or actually to feel part of it sometimes. That there is this sort of scattering of almost ruins that seems to be around us. And we don't quite know how to respond, and we don't quite know what we can do about it. If you weren't feeling miserable when you came to church, I hope you're feeling miserable now, and I, I hope that's true now. So what, 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 what do we do about it? 
Is it a, a George Clark remarkable renovation project that we're in at the moment? Or is it a Fred Dib- Dibner demolition project that we've got to be part of? Or perhaps it might be a Kevin McLeod di- grand design project that we do need to be part of. But how do we respond in the midst of the rubble that we see, the uncertainty, the brokenness in people that we know, in places where we work, in institutions that we we held dear, in nations and across our world as well. How do we respond to it as the people of God? So we meet Nehemiah. We meet Nehemiah, a Jew living at the beginning of his story in Susa, what was the capital of the great mighty Persian empire of that particular day. At this time in the story, there have been three great deportations from uh, Jerusalem uh, into exile. So a little bit of history. If you hate history, just switch off now and you can come back into the room in a few moments. In 606 BC, so 600 years before Jesus was born, the royal families and the elite of the people in Jerusalem were removed away from uh, the center, the capital there. That included people like Daniel. So when you read the book of Daniel, Daniel uh, was part of that exile in 600 BC, around then. In 597 BC, a few years later, all the skilled people from Jerusalem were deported into exile. And that included people like Ezekiel and He's got a whole book after him in the Old Testament as well. And then in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian military leader, he destroyed Jerusalem, he destroyed Solomon's temple as well, and the vast majority of those remaining in Jerusalem were then brought into exile in Babylon. But there was still a small remnant that stayed in Jerusalem amidst the ruins, Still a few who managed to eke out life in the chaos and the rubble that was around them at that particular time. Looking around, seeing rubble, wondering what could possibly happen next in their lives and in the history of their great nation, the nation of Israel. God's treasured treasured possession at that particular time. And you imagine them wandering around the rubble in that place Wondering, could something new come out of this? Could restoration begin to happen even in the chaos and the brokenness that is all around us at that particular time? And then as the story moves on, there are three great returns back to Jerusalem that begin to happen. So Zerubbabel in uh, 537 BC he led the royal families back into Jerusalem and began to reestablish the line of David in that place again. And that was pretty important, really, because if you look in Matthew chapter 1, verse 13, in the genealogy of Jesus, Zerubbabel is part of that line. So he, that was a crucial part of God's plan to get Zerubbabel back there and the royal family continue to be in that city that led us centuries later to the coming of Jesus. He rebuilt the temple, which was a magnificent job, wasn't it? He rebuilt what was broken, the heart of the city. And then Ezra, who you might also know from the Old Testament uh, books, he took the priests and the Levites back 
and 485 BC. You, 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 you've got this all jotted down, haven't you? I can see that you're all intrigued by the history, but I hope you're getting, getting the, the sort of the, the general line of this. And Ezra went back with, with the priests to, to reestablish the religious nature of the city as well. And then the third return back happens with Nehemiah which is where we are now. I know it took a long time to get back to him, but that's where we are now, 444 BC, okay? So quite a long time since the deportation, but in 444 BC, Nehemiah is now the person who God's hand is on for the next phase of the journey. And that's where we start from in our look at Nehemiah today and over the next couple of weeks. Now, I need to say that none of those three leaders who took people back to Jerusalem were perfect. They all made mistakes. There was going to be a perfect leader who would restore and renew and rebuild the lives not only of a nation, but also of the world and the people in it. But he was still to come. So in the meantime, it's frail, broken leaders who who get the opportunity to be part of God's plan. But we learn key lessons from each of the three who took people back. Key lessons that I think we helps us to understand perhaps the part we can play in the restoration of the nations, of our communities, of our families, of our workplaces, of our church as well. That we set out to be part of the solution, just as those three leaders did. The solution that God longs to be part of his ongoing plan for his world. So we may see rubble just like they did. But I wonder if we will be part of bringing revival as God places his hand on his people today and upon the church to be the solution to, the, to what is going on. Now Zerubbabel... His sort of weakness was that he refused help from people in the city of Jerusalem who had never been in exile. So he just used the people who had been in exile. He, he ignored all the people who had stayed there or anybody else who wanted to help. But God, of course, had said that all tribes would come together and unity would be the sign of his presence. But Zerubbabel did it his way. He still did it, but he chose to do it his way. Ezra? Well, Ezra condemned the exiles who had married non-Jewish women. And he demanded that those who had sinned in that way should be sent away. But in Malachi chapter 2, God says that that wasn't the way to deal with it. That he got it wrong in that moment. Fancy a leader getting it wrong. Can you imagine a leader ever getting anything wrong? And then Nehemiah. Nehemiah, who was to rebuild the walls... But God had said, 150 years before Nehemiah came on the scene, you can read it in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 4, that Jerusalem would be a city without walls. But Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. Now, was he wrong? Well, was he right? I'm not judging all of that. But the key thing is that these leaders weren't perfect. But they did respond to what God was trying to say to them and trying to make a difference at that particular time. You see, the thing is that God didn't condemn them for getting it wrong in that moment. But you see, in God's eyes, this isn't just about bricks being rebuilt. 
In God's eyes, revival only happens when people are rebuilt, when hearts are transformed, hearts are renewed, hearts are built up again and turn their attention back to the living God. That's what God desires still today. That when we see rubble, he sees revival coming from his people to rebuild what is broken. So what does God want to rebuild in your life? In the lives of the people around you, in your families, in your workplaces? What does God want to rebuild? Where, where could we see revival begin to happen in our community, in our nation, around our world? How does God want to use your life and your witness to the truth of God's love to make this difference today? Can the rubble really be turned into revival as we fall on our knees in desperation for him to come and his spirit to fill us afresh and anew? As we repent and as we come before a holy God who longs for us then to get up off our knees and be involved in bringing his kingdom in. What could that look like in your workplace, for example? What could revival look like in the school that you're part of, or the college, or the university, or the place where you go every day, whether it's a desk or whether it's a field? What could revival look like? I was thinking about workplaces uh, this week and, and feeling, you know, thinking, praying for all of you who are every day moving into the workplace. And, you know, that's a tough environment to be in. And I, I don't know if in your workplace, have they ever had a bring a child to work day? Have you ever had one of them? Or, or bring a dog to work day? Or bring a, bring a grandparent to work day? Have you ever had one of them in your workplace? What about bringing your bed to work day? That happened every day during COVID, didn't it? Let's be honest, those of you that worked at home, bring a, a bed to work day. But what about bringing God to work day? What about bringing God in? To the midst of that place. I think that's impossible. I think it's impossible to bring God into your workplace. And let me tell you why. Because he's already there. And he's looking at his watch and saying, how come you're so late? Join me in what I want to do. And that's how revival begins to start, whether it's in a workplace or a family or a community. It's when we join God in what he is already doing. When we see it and we fix our eyes on it, that's how revival begins to come out of the rubble. Because revival starts in, in me and in you. That's where revival starts. That's when we start experiencing that infilling of his spirit who revives us and energizes us and calls us deeper into the work that he longs for us to do. So whether you are in the workplace or whether you're retired, whatever you do, God has a per plan and purpose for you. After all, Nehemiah, what was he? Just the cupbearer of the king. He was just the cupbearer of the king. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a prophet. He was a cupbearer of the king. And every day that was what he did until the day when he heard the voice of God. 
And I think this is what Nehemiah heard. He heard, something is wrong. It needs putting right. Something's wrong, and it needs putting right. When Nehemiah in our text met Hanani, he asked questions, didn't he? He heard the news of what was happening way back in Jerusalem. I mean, Nehemiah hadn't lived in Jerusalem. He was far too young. He was part of the exiles, of those who were exiled, of the born after exile. He was, he was conditioned to the Persian culture. But he wanted to know what was going on in Jerusalem because even though he didn't live there, his heart was there. That was his home. He knew that. He knew the stories. He knew the history. And so when Han and I came, he asked questions and said, what's going on at home? And he heard the news of the broken down walls. And what does the text say? He sat down and wept. In that moment, his heart was broken to a point of weeping about all that was going on. He sat down and wept because the walls were broken. The gates were burned down. And that distressed him to the point of weeping. The place is in danger. The people are living in disgrace. A return from exile of the previous two returns had not changed anything. Something deeper was needed. The temple was built. The religious order of the day had been restored. But there was still something missing. And Nehemiah felt it deeply in his heart. That God had stirred this this place of tears in him. That the cupbearer to the king, the wine taster, the sommelier, the food taster, the first line of defense that would stop King Artaxerxes being poisoned by his enemies. The protector, if you like. I, I, I thought he's like the wall around the king, Nehemiah is. He's like the wall that protects the king from being killed. And here he is, about to go and restore the walls that have been broken down in Jerusalem. He's the one person that God's hand is on for this particular moment and whose heart is softened to what he hears. He's protected the king very well because he's still alive. But now he knew he had to protect the king of kings. He had to do something about the rubble. He had to be part of bringing revival. Something is wrong. It needs putting right. So why the tears? Why, why did he weep at all of this? I, I was wondering about this, and I was trying to think, why, why, why would he weep? And I was thinking, well, maybe out of anger? Why doesn't someone sort it out? Maybe out of regret? Do you know what? I should have gone and done something before I'd heard this. I should have been more proactive in sorting this problem out. Maybe out of regret. Maybe he felt guilty. I've done nothing. Here I am in the palace at Susa. I've done nothing about the, the disgrace of my people. Maybe out of guilt that he hadn't done anything about it. Or maybe out of a feeling of powerlessness. I can't do anything about it. And it hurts me to the point of tears. But he sat down and wept. How long do we weep? Do we fast? Do we pray to the God of heaven when we see or hear that something is wrong? when something is broken down, when the rubble is so obvious that we almost lose sight of it? How long do we wait for someone else to do something about it? 
how long will we then sit on the sidelines and complain about it or criticize it or condemn it when nothing is done while we sit and do nothing? And I think this is time to remember God's promise. I think it was time for Nehemiah to remember God's promise to the people. You know, when the temple was dedicated in 515 BC, so in that second return, no, the first return, sorry, Zerubbabel, when the temple was dedicated, after Cyrus has allowed Zerubbabel to return with some of the exiles in that first return, this is what God said to the people at that moment of the rebuilding of the temple. You can read it in 1 Chronicles chapter 7. God said this, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, when life lies in ruins, when the walls are broken down, when there's rubble everywhere and I can't, I can't do anything about it, this is God's promise. 1 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. See, that sounds like revival to me, does it to you? Does that sound like God's promise saying, you know, out of this rubble, out of the mess that is there, out of the brokenness, out of the frailty, out of the the things that have gone wrong, out of that comes revival. I will heal their land. And it's too easy when we look around to forget that promise of God and to forget the other promises, the countless promises that God has already given to his people. And we see the rubble. And we forget his promises. We lose hope that revival could happen. That when something goes wrong, we stop seeing it. We stop believing perhaps that God could do something about it. We stop thinking that I could do something about it. When all God is calling us to is to weep, to fast, to pray. That's the starting point for revival to happen. If you read any of the great revivals that have happened through history, even recent history, they all begin with weeping and fasting and praying. It's as old as the Old Testament, where God has given us glimpses of how the rubble could be turned into revival. And when we do that, when we begin to hear God's next steps, then something begins to change. There's a lot of talk about culture, isn't there? Recent, I don't know whether it's recent or not. I'm sure it's not recent. But the culture of our, of our nation or the culture of the workplace or the culture of our family, how it functions, how it operates. A lot of talk about how we change the culture. The key thing about changing culture is don't give up on it. Don't give in to it. But let God change it. See, followers of Jesus, we know that what is dead can come back to life again, don't we? Have you heard the story of resurrection? Do we know that that what is dead can come back to life again? That what seems hopeless can suddenly find hope again? I think we know that. And we've probably experienced it in our lives. So let's trust God that that can happen in the rubble that we see. The ruins can be restored. 
and the rubble can be renewed. There is a time for lament, for weeping, fasting, and praying. It took Nehemiah to his knees. He prayed for the exiles who hadn't survived, for the trouble and disgrace of those who had survived. And he began to see, as God birthed this new vision in him of what could be, of how God wanted him to respond to the brokenness that was around him. And perhaps very cautiously, he put up his hand and said, I'll do it. I'll do it. Days of fasting and praying, eyes red from tears of repentance. He confesses in his prayer how he and his people have failed to live according to God's covenant. He admits where following their own narrative has led home, has led them. They may be home in Jerusalem, but they're still in exile from God. And he sees where reconnecting with God and his great plan could lead his people. And so he got to his feet. And the rest, as they say, is history. So what if we could begin to see revival? What if we could begin to see that out of the rubble, there's possibilities of God doing something brand new? What if we could be the voice that begins to bring hope where there is despair? That begins to transform the the view of what is happening to something that God has for us. We look around and we know that the world is not what it should be, don't we? We know that. It just makes sense. We feel it every day. We know that something is wrong. There is rebuilding to be done. But it's only recognizing that we're part of the big story that then we can become involved in the small stories that happen to us every single day. When we see who God is, when we recognize who we are, then we get inspired and then we get empowered to rebuild faithfully. So what do you see? What do you see in your neighborhood where you live? What do you see in your workplace? What do you see in your generation? What do you see that jolts you awake like that conversation jolted Nehemiah awake when he suddenly realized, oh my goodness, this is the reality. What am I going to do about it? And after pulling your face to the ground in prayer, you get to rise up onto your feet again and be part of writing this continuing great story of God that leads us, that leads us to the vision in Revelation of that great city, renewed, restored, that leads on into eternity. How long does Nehemiah pray for? Well, at the beginning of the next chapter, it tells us it was about four months Four months, roughly, he prayed. From probably the end of November or December through to the spring. When revival began to stir again. When new things began to happen. When life came out of death once again. God answers his prayer. 
And God will answer your deepest prayer. James 5.16 says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So to finish this morning, there are four no's we can learn from Nehemiah's response to the broken walls and burned gates. Four no's, okay? This is what I want to leave you with today for you to think about during this coming week. Know who you're praying to. When you start seeing the rubble, know who you're praying to. Nehemiah 1, 5 to 6. How did Nehemiah pray? Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night night. Know who you're praying to. The second no, just know how to approach God. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Confess. Confess with humility where Things have gone wrong. Take responsibility and come before God in prayer. Know how to approach God. Thirdly, know the promises of the past. Verse 8, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. I love it when Nehemiah starts reminding God of what God had already said. Don't you? I love that. Such a beautiful, intimate image, isn't it? God, remember... (laughs) Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But but if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. No matter how far you've drifted away from God. No matter how far you feel away from him today. He invites you back. If you're in exile at the moment from him. For whatever reason. Maybe it's something you've done that's that's caused a sort of self-exile. And you know you're not living as God wants you to live. Or whether it's just that you've almost forgotten him. He hasn't forgotten you. And he calls you back from exile to be part of his plan and he reminds you today of the promises he's made to you from the past there's still yes and amen because of Jesus so even if you feel at the farthest horizon he invites you back home and he reminds you of the promises they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand because of Jesus you're part of his family anyway Nothing's going to change that other than a decision you make. So he welcomes you home. Know the promises of the past. And finally, know the power of the present. In this moment, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by great granting him favor. Know the power of the present. And here's 
what God says to you, to me, to us today in Isaiah 58. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, (laughs) appropriate for today, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. That's still our task today, to repair what is broken. Instead of seeing the rubble, we get a glimpse of what revival looks like as we respond to God's hand upon our lives. I was the cupbearer of the king. That's all I was. Nehemiah, this is your time. Church, this is our time to see revival come as our nation, as our world is crying out for something to stand on. And we have the rock of ages to stand firm and secure on today. So what do you see? And what sort of God are you going to pray to about it? And what do you hear him saying to you as well? Persevere in prayer. Be available to respond. And then act. It might take you four months of prayer, but that's fine. Because there's a great precedent for four months. But there will be a time when God brings you back to your feet. Because you're the one He's calling to do something about it. Something is wrong, isn't there? It needs putting right. And God has his people ready and may be available to do what he longs for us to do so that we are included in the amazing things that he still has to come as we bring his kingdom in. Because how you respond today to what you hear and see will allow God to use you tomorrow. Joshua said to his people before they crossed the Red Sea, before they saw this incredible obstacle, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. God will do amazing things among you. So God, will you use me? Will you do amazing things tomorrow? as we keep our eyes fixed on you. Use us to see your kingdom come, I pray, in your name. Amen.